Welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 41, recorded on February 18th, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you this week. And we start the week off with a bit of a celebrity project. Dtrace, the famous, world famous Dtrace, has been relicensed as GPL version 2. So hang on, this is Oracle dropping the CDDL and going to GPL? That can't be right. I know, shocker, shocker. Well, in part, this has been in the works since August. So let's back up and talk about what Dtrace is. Dtrace is a really comprehensive tracing framework that was created by Sun Microsystems back in January of 2005. Now, a tracing framework essentially allows a developer or administrator to watch everything an application does on a system from the application layer all the way down to the kernel. It can be used to get a global overview of a running system, such as the amount of memory or CPU or file system and network resources that an active process is taking. Extremely useful, but it's been rather closed off to Linux users for a long time. And Oracle is relicensing the bits that communicate with the kernel to GPL version 2. That doesn't mean the entire Dtrace stack is going to be GPL 2. In fact, some of the user bits are being relicensed to a totally new license, at least a new license to me, called the UPL, which is apparently the universal permissive license, which is compatible with the GPL version 2. Which is good enough, isn't it? At least it's not like the CDDL, which is incompatible with GPL. Asterisks, not according to Canonical. But this is much more straightforward. Now, we're not going to have a problem with combining it with GPL software because it's completely permissive, that bit of it. And so this begs the question, if Oracle can do this for Dtrace, could they possibly do it for ZFS? I wonder about that myself. And there is a very interesting parallel here between ZFS and Dtrace. There is the Oracle Dtrace, and then there's Open Dtrace, which is a totally different project that's been going on for a while now. And just like with ZFS, there's Oracle ZFS, and then there's Open ZFS. Well, Open ZFS is nearly 50% new code from when they forked from Oracle. And so the question that's on my mind is what happens to both Open Dtrace and Open ZFS if Oracle does relicense at least their kernel bits to GPL, which it does seem they could do? This could be their GPL toe in the water, Joe. Well, let's hope so, because it means that we can get things working on Linux without any question at all. Like As I said, we've got it on Ubuntu, but it would be nice for there to be no question mark as to whether that is allowed or not. Yeah, or put another way, maybe Ubuntu was right to ship it if they're eventually going to relicense anyways. Who knows? We'll just have to wait and see. A note back about Dtrace, though. So yeah, this started around August 1st of 2017, and they've been working towards it. But more recently, the Dtrace Linux kernel Git repository went live with Dtrace commits that have been repaced on top of recent upstream Linux kernel builds. So we may see this submitted upstream to the main Linux kernel, and it just could be something that we get as Linux users in short order. Yeah, hopefully, but from potentially good news to potentially bad news, and that is that Mozilla are adding sponsored stories to the Firefox new tab page, which has come from their pocket integration. And from what I have seen of people's comments on this, this is just Mozilla moving in the wrong direction. What don't people freak out 
about Mozilla these days. When Pocket got shipped, it was um, a huge controversy. I still remember people being upset about Pocket. And as somebody who switched to Firefox after version 57 again, Pocket's one of my favorite features. And uh, I got to admit something else. Been using the new tab page. Been using the recommendations on the new tab page when I want a nice relaxing read in, in the afternoon or the evening. And while I'm not a huge fan of ads in my browser, if they do them right and it gives them a sustainable revenue stream that isn't the teat of Google, then I'm, I'm actually a fan of it. I'm not a huge fan of it, but I'm a fan of it. Well, that's kind of part of what they said when they announced this, that they want to have relevant adverts that are not just clickbaity nonsense. And as you have proven, you're already finding it useful. And they do have to fund it somehow. And if that means that potentially moving away from the Google money, which, let's face it, that will dry up eventually, won't it, when Chrome just completely dominates as it basically already has, then they're going to need a new revenue stream. And this, I suppose, is less offensive than some of the ones. But just coming off the back of this Mr. Robot thing, it's just not the time. Well, I suppose when is the time to announce new things like this? Mm -hmm. But it... It's just going to rub people the wrong way. And people don't want this from an open source browser. And you're saying Pocket's useful. I use Pocket all the time. They did promise to open source it. That was a long time ago. There's been a Git repository. There's not much happening there. They've certainly not announced anything about running your own server. They just seem to be too much like the competition. They're not differentiating themselves in necessarily the right ways. And the right ways would be to be totally open source, not have these weird proprietary add-ons thrust at you, and to not be all about marketing and commercialization. Fair enough. I think those are all good points, Joe. You know, the more you and I talk about Mozilla on this show, I realize they really suck at communicating. They, they, they communicate as if they were a offshoot of the Internet Explorer department at Microsoft from the 90s, and then they became a large company, and all of a sudden they had to communicate with the world. If they, if they came out and they communicated more effectively, I think people would be on board. How have they communicated? Well, here's an example. The reason for doing this is because they believe they can create a platform that supports high-quality content that respects users' privacy and that puts control back into the hands of users. And they're going to do so in a way that is financially sustainable for the future health of the web. So they're going to explore the ways to do this. Now, what are they saying there? It sounds like they want to build a platform. It sounds like they want to create lock-in. It sounds like they want to generate revenue and have hand-selected content. Those things all sound bad. But what I believe the intention behind that paragraph is, we want to find a sustainable funding model so that way we can keep fighting for the free web because if we go down, then it's Microsoft and Google and a little bit of Apple they are going to run this whole show. And so we're trying to come up with a way to make money that still respects privacy, that can be done in a classy way, that takes lessons learned from the rest of the web, and how we've tried to monetize, we being the internet, have tried to monetize ads on the web for all of these years. We're going to look at those lessons, we're going to take those lessons in, and we're going to implement something that's better, so that way we can stop taking money from companies like Yahoo and Google, but keep fighting for a free web. And if they literally said it like that, 
I don't think there would be any question about why they're doing this. I don't think there would be any problem. But because they speak like they're some sort of offshoot from the Internet Explorer Department from the 1990s, they come across like bureaucrats. And we don't trust bureaucrats anymore. We, as in people of the Internet. And when they start talking about platforms and high-quality content and, and financially sustainable, it comes across like a bunch of bureaucrats that are trying to figure out their next revenue grab. Yeah, I can't argue with any of that, man. It's just communication issues. Yeah, I think here's what I've decided to do now. In light of the way I now look at Mozilla, is I just have to go by their actions. I do like how they're rolling this out. So first of all, they're only going to do this in the U.S. to start with. So if you're outside the U.S., you're not even going to see this for a while. It's only going to be in a certain small portion of the U.S. user base, and it's only on the new tabs page where they're going to have recommendations from Pocket, places you've been to recently, and one of their hand-picked sponsored posts. See, this is that's a totally different thing than like something like Google Ads, where it's a it's a bunch of machines that are just choosing the ads based on random auctions, and then just putting up something that based on keywords that they think is right. This is going to be something, in theory, that somebody who's been charged with a job at Mozilla is going to be handpicking and putting a tile on on a small sub-portion of the U.S. user base of Firefox. And that's how this is starting. It, 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 those actions, I completely agree with. That seems reasonable and like a good way to roll this out. And I'm also totally in support of them c- coming up with revenue models outside of their existing ones. It's just how they've talked about it, how they kind of slip it in, and, and, and the way that this whole pocket thing has been received to begin with. I think if this whole pocket controversy had been communicated properly from the beginning, we wouldn't be still experiencing the ripples of people's dissatisfaction with that pocket transaction. Yeah, well, Google are also kind of guilty of miscommunicating when it comes to AMP, accelerated mobile pages. People have long since said it's disingenuous of them to claim that the idea is to make the the web uh, more open and and faster for everyone. And we talked about that previously, but this week they've come out with AMP Stories and AMP for Email, which pretty much backs up that it's not about the open web. It's about Google wanting to dominate with things that they've come up with themselves. That's a really strong opening statement, but I can't disagree. The The part that is the most offensive about this news today that I'm going to explain is the part that I was actually very dismissive at first. Because when I hear something that's Snapchat-like stories, I have this mechanism in my brain. It's kind of like the cloud to butt extension for a lot of people's browsers. I just mute it immediately. Oh, Snapchat, I tune it out. This is actually very insidious, though, and I could see why big organizations are going to gobble this up. In Google's failure to get Buzz and failure to have Google Plus and even Wave take hold, they've realized that where their strengths lie, email and search. That is their power zone. So why not introduce social-like features to these platforms? So AMP Stories is going to bring visual interactive elements to Google search, just like Snapchat Stories, with visually rich storytelling, Google says. And of course, it's all powered using AMP, it's cross-platform, and it'll be right there in the search results. Where the knowledge cards are today, there's now going to be interactive visual stories, and all the publisher has to do is just turn a few extra features on on their publishing platform, install a few Google plugins, and they can start publishing these interactive stories right to Google search results. Google is saying, ah, we don't need our own social network, we own search with this move. But 
Am I just radically out of touch here, or does this sound like a terrible idea, both stories and email? I, I don't want extra stuff added to these things. And the idea of like animated graphics and stuff happening in search, I can't help but feel that if this takes off, then 10 years down the line, we're going to look back on it the same way we looked at Blink and Marquee in the early websites hmm. and, and animated GIFs and stuff. It just is naff and just not what we need. We want simplicity, not trying to make it fancy for its own sake. So let's talk about the email part. So yeah, they're also announcing AMP for Gmail, which uh, starting with Gmail developer previews of AMP, uh, which is available today, these new features will allow users to perform simple tasks such as booking calendar appointments, checking into flights, all directly within an email using AMP for email. Yeah, you said AMP for Gmail originally there, which is what this actually is. And yet they're calling it AMP for email to try and suggest that it's for the open web, it's for anyone to use. But who else is actually going to use it? Exactly. Both AMP for the web and now AMP stories and AMP for email are solving problems that should be solved in different ways. And they're consolidating this all onto Google services. I think Google realized that when they couldn't build their own social network, they just needed to own the entire web. So they're making a hard play with Chrome right now, and they're eating up market share like a madman. They're rolling out AMP, iterating on that, and they're not slowing down. And then now you combine that with their new annoying ad blocking, quote unquote, that they're baking into Chrome, where Google, who makes all of their money from selling ads, is going to determine what ads people should be able to see in the world's most popular browser. And now on the world's most popular search, if you use their AMP technology, you can give users a very special experience that they'll only see on Google search. And it works best in Google Chrome. Obviously. Yeah, it's just them wanting to completely dominate. And can you really blame them? That's what a business's whole job is to do, is to dominate a market. And for us to complain about that, it is just ridiculous. That's what they should be doing. That's their job. I agree. Well, going back to our Mozilla discussion, Mozilla could be hammering these points. I suspect, and who knows, this is total rampant speculation, but perhaps the financial agreement with Google is too great to come directly out and hit these points hard. But we do need a Batman to swoop in with a cape on and save us from this particular problem. Mozilla could be that Batman, and yet they can't communicate it clearly. Last.ting.com. It's a smarter way to do mobile, and the average Ting bill is just $23 per phone per month. It's pay for what you use wireless. So you pay for your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes, and then $6 for the line itself. That's it. Well, then Uncle Sam's tax. That's it right there. $6 for a line, and then your usage. Nationwide coverage, CDMA, and GSM, no contracts, no quote-unquote commitments or service agreements, and then... I don't know what, maybe it's just me, but all our sponsors have the best dashboards. And Ting, nobody beats Ting's dashboard in the mobile industry. Go check it out, last.ting.com. Support the show, get $25 in service credit if you bring a device. Because remember, I did mention they support CDMA and GSM, which means there's lots of devices you can bring. They have a BYOD page, and there's lots of devices you can choose from. If you want to buy one brand new, I'm going to give a quick recommendation for the Moto G5S+. Plus. $254 when you go to last.ting.com, you own it outright. No payments, no contract, nothing. You own the device like you own your computer, and it has CDMA and GSM support. It has 32 gigs of built-in storage, but 
microSD, go up to 128 gigs. And my favorite feature, the Motorola's have the turbo power charging. You can get six hours of battery life in 15 minutes of charging. It also runs Android 8.0, so it's a good future phone as well for $254. The Moto G5 S Plus and many others are at Ting. Last.ting.com. Okay, let's talk about Ubuntu and a bit of drama that came out this week from a seemingly innocuous mailing list post by Will Cook. It caused a massive storm on Reddit and all over, really. And it all boils down to they want to collect some data on their user base. And so there's no way that this can possibly be anything but evil and them spying on their users, right? Well, I think it's clear that they want to know exactly where every single Ubuntu user lives down to the room and maybe perhaps even grab screenshots of uh, their computing sessions, right? That's what came out of this announcement? Yeah, and their webcams and stuff, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I understand people are concerned about this kind of stuff. And yes, it would be checked on by default, but the way they're talking about this is it would be in the installer. So it would be an install option. And, you know, I hope they pick the right verbiage here. Uh, learn from our friends at Mozilla. Make sure you communicate clearly that this is going to be a one-time shot of information after install. Once the networking comes online, they're going to upload the information. And then there's popcorn, which remains active in the background, which would report periodically about the packages you install. And then there's crash reporting software. So we're not talking telemetry from Windows 10 here, where it's, Everything you do is being submitted back to Microsoft on an ongoing basis. We're really talking about one big shot after you install, so that way they get an idea if you have a trackpad and the kind of Wi-Fi that you have. And they're pretty clear about what they would look at. The CPU family, disk sizes, GPU, OEM vendor, if you have Live Patch turned on, the disk layout that you've chosen. I think all of these things would help them make a better product. So it makes sense why they would want this information. I'd like to hear what you think, because I definitely have a couple of concerns. A couple of red lights are flashing pretty rapidly in my brain right now, but I, I don't know. I'd kind of like to know what you think. I hate to sit on the fence, but that's where I am on this. I, I haven't made up my mind yet, because on the one hand, it is incredibly useful information that they can make the product better with, and it's going to benefit the users. But on the other hand, it feels that they have to do it really, really well Otherwise, it could go horribly wrong because he's talking about in this mailing list post publishing this data as well in an anonymized format, which is essentially statistics, which is useful. I would love to know what OEMs people are using and a bunch of that stuff and how modern CPUs people are using statistically. But the thing is, although, yes, he's talking about the information being sent over HTTPS, what I would really love to see is them open source exactly what's at their end of this. And obviously everything at our end is open source anyway. Send it over a secure connection. And then really people can't complain, can they? If they know exactly what's happening with this data and how it's being sent and how it's being collected. But I just fear that if they bungle even one slight part of that, it could go horribly wrong. I think the number one thing I do like about this is that they're going to make the data public. That could be fascinating for a lot of people. And you are so right. If they were open sourcing this where it was something that other distributions could even jump in on and use, that would be really valuable, uh, or at least self-host. 
The other thing I'll say that would make me feel a lot more comfortable about this, and they're discussing this right now, is a really clear checkbox to opt out later on after install. Because I have several questions about this, and making a clear, easy place for somebody to go, like in the privacy section of GNOME settings, to turn this off would be a slam dunk. Because how does this work for OEMs? If I buy an Ubuntu laptop from Dell and they install it for me, are they checking that box? I would assume it would be a policy. And because Canonical is one of their trusted partners, they would probably turn it on by default. So I would like to have a checkbox in GNOME settings to turn it the hell off if I didn't like it. Personally, I'd actually probably leave it on. Um, and then the other thing I have to wonder about is how does this affect downstream distributions like Elementary OS or Ubuntu Mate? How will they be impacted by this code upstream? Uh, and it's even more interesting for distributions like Pop! OS and Elementary OS that might not be using the Ubiquity installer. Well, yeah, that is a big question about the downstream distros, and they need to work with them, essentially, or at least make it really easy for them to either disable this or enable it, depending on what they want to do. And the flavors like Ubuntu Mate, well, they're using Ubiquity. So the question is, is it something that they're going to have to integrate into their control panel or settings menu somewhere to disable it afterwards? There's a, there's a lot of questions here. And I suppose that's the point of proposing this on an open mailing list where everyone can have their say. But I asked Popey about when Will is planning to implement this or thinking about implementing this, and it is in 1804, which is in a couple of months' time, uh, which seems like an awfully short period of time to be thinking about this. But 1804 is going to be a huge release for them. It's going to have a lot of users, and there's a lot of valuable data there, so you can see why they want to put this in there. But is that enough time for all the flavors and downstream projects to be consulted and have their say? I suspect not. Yeah, you nailed my main concern right there. That's what I've kind of been biting my tongue about is it feels too soon for 1804, but I totally understand why you would want 1804 because for the next five years, that's going to have... And I I, I know because I went to the Ubuntu rally and Mark Shuttleworth talked about at, in one of his keynotes that the LTS has a ginormous larger user base than all of the other intermediate releases. People do jump from LTS to LTS. 17.10 bucks the trend a little bit because it's so different, but if you take 17.10 out of the data, the LTSs can be as much as 20x users compared to the uh, intermediate releases. And so there's a huge incentive. Try to collect as much data as possible because those are the releases that really matter. I totally understand that. I realize those are the dynamics that they're working with. At the same time, 1804 comes out in April. And they are talking about building a back-end infrastructure to store all of this information securely and privately. That feels like that's a year-long project just in the design and building and testing phase. I don't know, not necessarily. I think it is, absolutely, because you've got to test data leakage from the client side, transmitting it up to the server. You've got to make sure that nobody in the middle can figure out who's talking to the server by getting involved in the session. There's all kinds of things you discover when you take a data set and you make it public. People have been often shocked how people can wheel down who is who. 
it is really particular information. It's your hardware. It's a vague area of where you're at. It's your versioning. There's more and more layers to this that you can use to whittle down who an exact person is. And there should be some public testing of that data first. It should really start with a small subset. Maybe it should have already been beta tested in 1710 at this point. And people should be reporting on it. And we should be finding these bugs out. We should be discovering that things aren't working quite right. This could be me channeling a little bit of fear from the way that the Unity Dash search was rolled out. And I hate to draw a parallel here because they are not the same things. But Unity Dash search came out, I think it was in 1204, mid-cycle. And it was one of the quote-unquote surprise features of 1204. And it very quickly was discovered that it wasn't encrypting the data correctly. It wasn't storing the information correctly. There was a lot of little small things that weren't major issues to fix, but didn't get discovered until a lot of people were using the software. Yeah, but come on, it's a checkbox. It might be on by default, and most people might stick to defaults, but all you have to do is just uncheck that, problem solved. Yeah, okay. You know what, though? If you go search Google today, you will still see people writing articles about the Unity spyware. It, it that, was true, that was true with the Amazon affiliate search stuff, and it still branded them badly. Mm. If it was me, Joe, if I, if I was shipping this, I would take it a little bit safe. I would include the checkbox with all of the same information and the full disclaimer about the types of information that would be collected, but I would start small. And then over 1804's life cycle via updates, I would increase the functionality of what that thing collects and how it collects it and how we store it as it evolves. But you start small, you ship a minimum viable product, and you get the user consent up front during installation of 1804, and then you iterate on it over the life cycle of 1804 and make it more complete, and then you have time to build it properly. This is all new. We're learning about it this week, and those are my initial concerns. Thinking about it, though, I could totally see how it helps them make a better product. If they have an idea that a lot of people are using a certain set of applications and they can focus on that security-wise and feature-wise, trackpads, Wi-Fi chips, GPUs, etc., it is a necessary function for them to make a better desktop, and I'm going to turn it on on my systems, and I'm just having a lot of faith that they'll work these things out because I am concerned that they're rushing this whole thing. Well, one of the data points that they will no doubt be collecting is whether or not you're using the minimal install option in 1804. And this is going to be another checkbox in Ubiquiti, which is going to allow you to install Ubuntu, but without loads of packages. It's pretty much just going to be GNOME and a web browser, and that's it. So not even an email client, a no torrent client, that sort of thing. Yeah, not to be confused with the mini ISO. Like Joe said, it's just a checkbox, and uh, probably the one I'll be using. I don't need Thunderbird or Rhythmbox or Cheese or Shotwell. I think I'm going to use this. Yeah, certainly what I would use if I was going to install the main Ubuntu Ubuntu have been offering a separate ISO for this for a while, but I think it's just a much more sensible thing. Why not just bake it into the installer instead of having to have a, a totally separate ISO? So yeah, this is a, a great move from them. Well, speaking of Ubuntu, if the dream of using your phone as the one device, the convergence device, if you will, then the Linux on Galaxy project has probably gotten your attention. We've talked about it before on the show, and there's been a bit of movement on Samsung's part this week. Yeah, now they're calling it Linux on DeX, D-E-X, which is the hardware that you need to use it, but there still seems to be a bit of confusion about the branding. But anyway, they've come out with a survey, and this is to try and ascertain exactly what people want from this. And as I always say with these surveys, if you don't take part in them and don't give them the data that they need to make the decisions, then don't go complaining when the actual thing comes out. 
And they ask you a whole bunch of stuff about um, whether you're a current Linux user and what distro and stuff you use. And also, I think the key question, one of the, the last ones is, would you be willing to pay for this? And I don't think many people are going to say yes to that, but you never know. It, they have to make money somehow, even if it's not just on the hardware, because there's a lot of software support, isn't there? It's it's not like the phones where they just push a few OTAs and then abandon it. They're going to have to, I think, to make this secure, do a lot of development work. So they're probably going to have to have a revenue stream in there. And so it's probably going to be some sort of subscription model. Although I'm hoping that people will hack it and make it uh, run lineage and you know, totally open source software. Yeah, interesting. If you say you're willing to pay for Linux in the survey, they then ask you a 13th question, and that is, how much money would you be willing to pay? <laughs> Aha. Well, you can see what I answered to that question then. <laughs> Did you say no? Yeah, I, I can take you said no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, they ask you, would you be willing to pay 0 to $10, 10 to $50, 50 to 100 or over a hundred, money does not matter. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know what? Just to just to skew the results, I'm gonna answer that one. But when I think about it, I'm not sure if I would be willing if I've got to drop a thousand dollars on a phone and I've got to drop a hundred and fifty dollars on a Dex dock. And let's be honest, to make that work, I probably need at least one or two because you have to have the Dex dock to I- invoke this Linux desktop. So you're going to want that at home and at work, or you're going to want that at a couple of stations. Otherwise, <laughs> what's, what's the point? So it is getting kind of expensive to then buy Linux access on top of that, especially if they end up using something that is just inherently available via kernel features. That gets a little harder to justify paying a lot of money for. They'd have to really nail the experience. And then I'd probably be willing to do it, uh, but something tells me they would try to sell it through like some sort of weird Samsung store and not the Play Store. Yeah. I think if it was a subscription model of like, I don't know, five bucks a month, maybe it might gain some traction in enterprise. But I think it all depends on what that experience is actually going to be like. Is it going to be good enough for developers and stuff? Because I can't see normal people using this, people who would use Windows normally switching to Linux because it's available on this. You're talking about people who are using the subsystem in Windows, pretty much, who would be interested in having a device for this. I, I don't know. There's been a lot of attempts at this before, and Samsung is a huge company, and maybe it'll spur a bit more Linux adoption, but I don't know, I'm not holding my breath for a massive success here, really. You know, I'm about to hit the road and go to scale, and I have to be honest, it would give me a bit of peace of mind if I knew I could take my phone with me and do everything I need from the road. That's where they're getting for developers. They're not there for content producers yet, but that's where they're getting for software developers. And if you put your mind in that sort of frame of reference, it is sort of a compelling device, a $1,000 phone, which you almost have to get anyways these days uh, if you're a software developer. Mm, It also can be your emergency workstation where you can bring up the Firefox web browser and a terminal and maybe Eclipse. I can see where their head's at. I don't know if anybody's willing to put their wallets there, but I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah. Well, a quick follow-up on last week. We talked about Linux running on the Nintendo Switch, and it was just kind of a command line. And I said, we're not going to have GNOME running on this. And then I kind of jokingly said, ah, someone will probably hack it. And sure enough, we've now had from the same people who hacked it in the first place, Fail Overflow, a demo of it running the Plasma desktop and Chromium browser, and actually running quite nicely with touchscreen and everything. 
Yeah, it does run really good. That was the thing I noticed. And I was like, oh, damn, the Switch has good touchscreen support under Linux. Uh, this is the moment where I realized, I bet I could justify this as a tax write-off for the job. We'll see if I end up with one, but <laughs> it totally crossed my mind. <laughs> nice. Well, you heard me mention it earlier. I'm going to be at scale in just a couple of weeks. March 8th through the 11th is scale in Pasadena, California. I know, I know. But if you're going to be there, come say hi to me. Let me know at Chris LAS. And I'll probably be doing a show from down there too. And just go subscribe. Go subscribe to the Linux Action News show and get it every single week. LinuxActionNews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. Yeah, and linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. And you can fund our open source news and Linux coverage every single week over at patreon.com slash jupitersignal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later.